How many times have we read this particular prophecy, our Lord? Most of us, at least dozens. And it grips us. Hearts are captivated by this. He who did not have iniquity of his own bore all of our iniquity. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. In oppression and judgment, he was taken away. His grave was with wicked men. But he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He, in fact, was the perfect righteousness of God. All that you had demanded, all that you had required of the law that no man could ever keep, he fulfilled it all in perfect righteousness. And it is this one that the prophet says you were pleased to crush. Here's the reason for the agony of Christ on the cross. That he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is unthinkable that God should crush God. Yet this is our only hope. Where will we find redemption? Where will we find forgiveness? Where will we find atonement for sin? Except in a perfect righteousness from a man who could stand in our place. And here is the God-man, Jesus Christ, our atonement, our Savior. It's Him we remember this morning. It's to Him that we are appointed this morning. Might we be captivated by Him? Might we be captivated by Your plan of redemption? Might we be exhorted by and encouraged by Your faithfulness to save your people. So, Father, open our eyes as we open your word so that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, from this revelation of yourself. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. This morning we come to the table of communion. And this table is rightly called the table of remembrance. It is designed to remind us of things that we... Uh, must not forget, things that we cannot forget, things that we dare not forget. We dare not forget our need for salvation. We dare not forget the cost of redemption. We dare not forget the centrality of the cross. We dare not forget the significance of the blood of Christ. We dare not forget the power of Christ's imputed righteousness. We dare not forget the nature of God who has brought this salvation to us. And that emphasis on the nature of God, the character of God, the attributes of God is where we are headed this morning as we come to the communion table. We are going to be reminded of the redemptive plan of God, but more than that, we are going to be reminded of the God of the plan of redemption. What kind of God has given us this salvation? What kind of God has sent His Son to be our Redeemer? What kind of God has taken pity on us who were sinners? What kind of God keeps us in our salvation? 
We find all of these questions answered as we have been looking at it for a number of weeks now in Romans chapter 9. And having gone through this chapter in some detail, I want to circle back and just do the, the big flyover of this chapter to help us to see the grand themes in this chapter one more time to see this central truth. God is always faithful. God is faithful in all things and God is faithful in our salvation. When God chooses people for salvation through election, He is faithful. When when God judges unbelievers for their rebellion against Him, He is faithful. When God takes Gentiles who are outside the plan of redemption that was made to the, to the Israelites and He folds them into that plan, God is faithful. He is always faithful. Romans 9 unfolds much about the elective sovereign purposes of God in salvation, but the chapter is ultimately not just about um, the elective plan of God in salvation, it's ultimately about the faithfulness of God, how God keeps us in our salvation. The question that guides this chapter is, will He save His people whom He has promised to save? So, so, He promised the Israelites that He would save them, and it doesn't look like they have been saved yet. And if they haven't been saved, will we be saved? Is He faithful to us? And related to that issue about His faithfulness to produce and finish His salvation, Paul asks and answers four questions about the nature of God and His faithfulness. And they guide us to understand that God is faithful always. And in all circumstances. How do we know that God is faithful? How do we know that we will be kept in the salvation He has given us? Paul answers that in four ways. Beginning in the first 13 verses of this chapter. The unbelief of Israel does not mean that God's promise has failed So Israel has not believed. God chose, starting with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, chose the nation of Israel to be His people, covenanted with them, made an eternal, unconditional covenant. This is my covenantal promise. It is I who will keep that promise, and I will keep it for all of eternity. Genesis chapter 12, and then ratified all through the beginning chapters uh, of Genesis And now it appears that Israel has not believed. Israel, in fact rejected Christ. Israel, in fact, crucified Christ. Will God still keep His promises to Israel? And if if God won't keep His promise to Israel, will He keep His promises to us? And Paul reminds us that the, the benefits that the Israelites had were... Really remarkable. Notice verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. As he identifies the position of the Israelites, and his his heart is grieved for the Israelites. He's finished on this high exaltation note at the end of chapter 8 about, about our salvation. Verse 37, chapter 8, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So, so um, our salvation is victorious, and, and we know that that nothing, death, not death, not life, not angels, principalities, etc. Nothing can separate us from the, from the love of God. And here's this beautiful benedictory song. And then chapter 9, as it were, almost sounds like a funeral dirge. That he goes from these highs to tremendous lows, thinking about the Israelites who have rejected Christ. 
And who are these Israelites? What did, what did they have? Notice verse 4. They are Israelites. That is, they had a covenantal relationship with God that put them in a unique position with them. Not only are they Israelites, but to whom belongs adoption as sons. They, they, be, before the promise of sonship is made to believers in Christ in Romans chapter 8, Israel long ago had the promise of sonship to God in heaven as well. He had, they'd been given special status as His chosen people, not only as His people, but as His sons. Not only that, notice also verse 4, they, they had the glory. That is, they saw the presence of God, the, the Shekinah, the outshining of the nature and character of God as it, as it was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. They, they had that with them in the tabernacle and in the temple. They saw His glory. They received the covenants. Not only had the promises been made to Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, those last three, Moses, David, Jeremiah, is an outgrowth of the promises that were made to Abraham, but they had the relationship with God who made those promises to them. He had, they had a covenantal relationship that could not be violated with Him. They had the law. Also, verse 4, the, the, the demonstration of the love of God, the nearness of God, the direction of God, the provision of God, the care of God, the guidance of God, the truth of God, not that they are saved by keeping the law, but that they cannot keep the law, and God gives a grace that will save them when they can't keep the law, which they cannot keep. They were entrusted as well with temple service, all the privileges of corporate worship and the blessings that, and transformation that arise from that worship. Also, end of verse 4, they have received the promises, not the covenants, but other promises of God that He had made to the nation of Israel and demonstrates His faithfulness to them. He will not forsake them. He is a promise-keeping kind of God. Verse 4, er, excuse me, verse 5, in addition to that, they had the fathers. They had Abraham, they had Isaac, they had Jacob, and they had the 12 other sons of Jacob, the, the 12 patriarchs. Everything that they had as a nation came through those men, starting with Abraham and following. And then supremely, middle of verse 5, and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, according to the flesh. That is, the Messiah comes through them phys- physically, and he is also overall. So he is the God man. He is he comes through them, has manhood, and he is also overall, that is, he is deity, he is blessed by God forever. So they had the Christ and he came, watch this, he came from them and he came to them. <laughs> they had everything. The benefits to Israel were absolutely remarkable. But at the same time, most of the individuals of Israel did not believe. Had God's promise to Abraham and Israel failed? The answer to that question, to answer that question, did, 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 did God's promises fail? We need to remember that God's plan of salvation for Israel was twofold. And so he had a plan that eventually the entire nation as a nation would be redeemed so that there would be a generation in which the entire nation would respond in faith and be saved. And, and that we, we still assert is still coming. So just flip over a couple of pages to chapter 11. What he says in verse 26, I've pointed this out previously, but just by way of reminder, he says, So all Israel will be saved. 
So the nation, as a nation, at some point will still be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He will remove all ungodliness from Jacob, from Israel. And Israel will be saved. This is my covenant with them, verse 27, when I take away their sins. Verse 28, he says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. They're they're not rejected by God. They're still beloved by God, accepted by God, and God will keep His promise to them. But, But before the completion of that promise, and we've seen this in chapter 9 a couple of different times, Um, Starting in verse 24, not only is the nation of Israel saved, but also he's folded Gentiles into that. Notice what he says in verse 24, this most amazing statement. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And friend, that's that's most of us. He's, He's brought us into the plan. We weren't chosen by Him as His covenantal people to begin with. And He said, let me, let me make a way for Gentiles also to come in and receive the promise, the blessing of salvation. Verse 25, this is what was promised in Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, that's you and me, and I will call them my people. And her who was not beloved... I will call beloved. We were outside. We weren't the people of God. We were not loved by God. And in His amazing grace, He has brought us in and He has saved us. So the nation, there's a twofold plan. One is the nation will be saved, but until the nation is saved, He's bringing in Gentiles. And friend, that ought to be an encouragement to you and me. He's brought in people like us. He's withheld the completion of His plan for Israel so He could bring us in. And then the other part of the plan is that until the nation is fully redeemed, some individuals were chosen for salvation. So we see that in 9-7. Not all are children because they are Abraham's descendants. So, so, So just because you're physiologically a descendant of Abraham, an Israelite, does not make you to be saved. There's something more that needs to happen. You need to be saved ultimately through Christ. And notice he says at the end of verse 7, but through Isaac, your descendants will be called. Your, your descendants will be named. Through, through Isaac, your descendant or your, your um, identity with Christ will come. So God is choosing Isaac and he is choosing Jacob in verse 11, and he is choosing other Israelites along the way. We know that from the Old Testament. We see that in the Gospels, the first part of the New Testament. We see that in the book of Acts, that God is bringing Israelites individually into the kingdom while waiting for the completion of his promises to the nation as a nation. We also need to remember that God is sovereign in His gift of salvation. And that's what unfolds in the rest of this section, starting in verse 7 through verse 13. That God is being gracious to individuals until the nation is saved. And, And Paul particularly focuses on the concept of God's call to salvation. So we have already seen that in verse 7. He says, through Isaac... 
your descendants will be named. That word named is actually better translated called. So through Isaac, your descendants will be called. That is the God, God um, sovereignly calls them and draws them to himself. He says something very similar in verse 11. Um, speaking about the sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. He says, God, uh, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So, again, God is working His purpose, God is working His plan, and God is choosing, and God is calling. God is sovereignly wooing and calling with an elective, effectual call to draw His people to Him. We see saw that in verse 24, if you were paying attention as I read that. Even us whom He also called. That, that elective, drawing, compelling, irresistible call, not from among Jews only, but also from Gentiles. We see that throughout this chapter, really through um, chapters 9 to 11. We see this repeated over and over. And as we think about the call... There's, a, there's two senses in which that word call is used. One is that, that there's got to be an external call, so somebody's got to speak, and we're going to see that in the middle of chapter 10. Somebody's got to speak the message of the gospel. And that, that's a general call that, that if, if this is spoken, you can respond in faith, and you must respond in faith. But then there's also, there's also the inward call by which he irresistibly draws us and brings to life um, those who were not alive. So Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 17. Um, As it is written, speaking about Abraham, a father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him who, whom he, Abraham, believed, even God, so that is, Abraham believed in God, and then he identifies the nature of God, verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So God calls, God speaks and draws and brings to life that which was not alive. And we have a, we have a great picture of that in, uh, in uh, John chapter 11 where Jesus goes to a graveside and he goes, Lazarus, come forth. He is calling into being, into life, that which was not alive. And that is the very same thing that He does to us spiritually. He draws us, He woos us, He compels us with a call that cannot be resisted. It is, it is not only an irresistible call, though, it is a gracious call, it is a compelling call, it is a call that lovingly draws us in. It's not as if we come in kicking and screaming and say, I don't want to go! No, but by the time the call comes... Along with that call is an awakening that says, I want to come. I know no better news than to come in response to this call and respond in faith. I want Him. This is how God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is how God chooses all men everywhere. And Paul also uses the word in this particular passage, um, the word chosen. Notice verse 11 Though the twins were not yet born or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, there's another intentional word, um, God's design, God's plan. They're, God had a purpose according to His choice. That word choice is actually His elective choice. So God has elected. God, God has chosen. God has known all the mass of humanity and all of all the mass of humanity. He has selected those who will be His and drawn them to himself. That's what he did with Israel. That's 
Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 14, He's chosen Israel from among all the nations and selected them to be His particular people. What Paul is doing in these opening 13 verses is emphasizing that God has saved exactly whom He has chosen. His promises have not failed. He's chosen and He has saved exactly whom He has wanted to save. Now, a question arises from that, and the question is, is God's choice unfair? Is, is, is that fair for God to do that? That's the question, second question that the Apostle Paul answers in verses 14 to 18. And his answer is that the election of some does not mean that God is unjust. God's choice in salvation means that God is merciful. It does not mean that He is unjust. And, and Paul addresses that in verse 14. What shall we say? In, in response to everything that I've just unfolded, Paul says, about, about God's plan of election and sovereignty and salvation, what, what should we say to that? There's no injustice with God, is there? In fact, that word injustice is, is the word unrighteousness. There's no unrighteousness with God, is there? He's not just asking the question, is God unfair? Friends, he's asking the question, has God sinned? Because that's the accusation. When we say God's not fair, we're saying God is not right in what He has done. And if God is not right, then friends, He has sinned. Has God sinned in this elective plan? And notice Paul's response. May it never be. Absolutely not. The thought is abhorrent to Him. How can you even consider that that idea? There is no unrighteousness in God. There is nothing of God that, that is unrighteous. It is always impossible for God to be unrighteous. And friend, if He could be unrighteous, He would be unrighteous. And if He would be unrighteous, then we are damned and we are absolutely hopeless. So how does Paul answer this question then? How is God just and how is God faithful in election? And he gives... He gives two answers. Verses 15 to 16, he says, God's election is not unjust. It's merciful. So, so he reminds us of the position of Moses and, and what God said to Moses about his salvation, about the salvation of Israel. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have, have compassion. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, did you recognize in those two verses, 15 and 16, he's used the word mercy three times. He's used the word compassion twice. It's all related to God's grace. It's all related to God's kindness. Paul is very subtly saying, wrong question. The question is not, is God unjust? The question is, why in the world is God merciful? to anyone because we don't deserve His mercy. We deserve His wrath. We we deserve His condemnation. The problem is not that God isn't fair in condemning. The, 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 The amazement is that God is gracious ever to anyone who deserves His condemnation. Again, this is this is Paul's way of identifying the fact that the wrong question is being asked. Oh friends, we We should not be astounded that God condemns sinners. His righteousness demands that He does. We should be astounded that He has saved us. I'm amazed that He saved me. 
I came to Christ at a very early age. And I have, since that time, still battled with sin. Anybody else in that same boat? Okay, four of you are honest. (laughs) And I think, you know, I was hardly a hardened criminal at six. And I think, if my flesh is bent to go over there with Christ, what in the world would it have been like without Him? And He saved me. The question isn't, would He have been fair to condemn me? The question is, why? Why? Why would He pour out His mercy on us? And that's what Paul identifies here. We should, we should live in astonishment when we have received mercy from God. And then Paul also reminds us in verses 17 and 18 that God's election is not unjust. Sin still gets rightly punished. He, he carries the argument a step forward because he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. In other words, God chose Pharaoh to be the leader of Egypt. He placed him in leadership of Egypt and he, we'll see in verse 18, that he kept him in his hardened condition against God, kept him in his rebellion against God, kept him in his sin, did not pour out mercy on him so that God could demonstrate I am victorious over all sin and all rebels that no one defeats me I'm authoritative over all I'm powerful over all people and all nations and and that is the very thing that gets manifested as Moses considers what God has done in freeing the nation of Israel from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. He has a song in in Exodus chapter 15. Just listen to some of what he says. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? So, So as I consider, Moses says, all that you did to liberate us from Pharaoh, who is holy like you? So God says in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, I raised you up to demonstrate my power. That's exactly what He did. And not just to the nation of Israel, but listen to what else Moses says, Exodus 15. He says in verse 14, The peoples have heard, they tremble. The peoples, the nations. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling grips them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Side note, notice that it's God's work that has freed them. And they haven't freed themselves And all of the nations see the power of God. And that's why God keeps Pharaoh in his rebellion against him so that he can pour out his justice against him and demonstrate his authority over all injustice and sin. We might summarize these verses, verses 14 to 18, this way. 
Friend, if God had not acted, no one would be saved because no one chooses God. That's Romans 3. No no one's heart is moved towards Him. There's no one who seeks Him. There's no one who desires Him. There's no one who longs for Him. And if, if, if our salvation was dependent on our choosing, none would ever come. The real problem is not why God chose some and not others, but the problem is why He chose anyone at all. He chose us. We did not choose Him. And that choosing is not unjust. It is merciful. Because, as one commentator says, if God had not chosen them, they would never have chosen God. There's a third question that is asked and answered in these verses. It starts in verse 19, goes through verse 29. And here Paul reminds us that the will of God does not mean God cannot judge. Here again we see the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of God is such that it does not mean that God cannot judge. Verse 19, Paul anticipates a question based on the mercy of God being poured out on people. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? How how can God still judge if he has chosen those whom will be saved. It doesn't seem that that's right. How can God still do that? And he answers in verse 20 um, the first way by saying, man has limited knowledge to question God's actions. Notice verse 20 to this question. How does he still find fault? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? He doesn't even answer the question. Just who do you think you are to ask that question? To answer back to God. Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to be rebellious in your words against God? In other words, you you don't even know what you're talking about. You are talking way beyond your pay grade. You don't get it. You don't understand. You don't understand your position before God. You you have no right to talk that way to an omniscient God. And friends, we before we talk back to God, before we before we criticize God, before we critique God, we need to remember our position before Him, and that is that He is the exalted God and we are low. Now it is true we are made in His image and likeness. That's Genesis chapter one, and we find that all the way through the scriptures. We are in being in Christ, we are being transformed into His image and likeness. But friends, even while we are being transformed increasingly into the likeness of God, there's still an infinite chasm between us and God. And we need to understand that there are things about Him that we do not understand, we cannot understand, and friends, even in glory, we will not understand. Because He is infinite in measure, and the finite can never understand the infinite fully. So we have a limited knowledge to question God's actions. Paul doesn't just leave it there. He does give us a little bit of an answer. And that's given to us in verses 21 to 23. And it is that God has unlimited sovereignty to act in accord with His will. So we have limited knowledge. God has unlimited sovereignty. And He he draws our attention at the end of verse 20 and then through verse 23 to the illustration of the potter. So a potter who's got this mass of clay that he's making stuff out of, he has a right to grab a piece of that clay and make whatever he wants out of it. Right? So he he can make out of this same chunk of 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 clay, he can take one vessel and make it for an honorable use. He can he can make a vessel that will 
that will carry the greatest treasure that one might have. And then he can make another one very common so that it will carry out the most basic kind of refuse in the house. And, and, and they both come out of that same clay. And Paul says, if a potter has right like that, if a potter has sovereignty over the clay, then God has even greater sovereignty over the things that He has made. And what if, what if God, verse 22, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Paul is reminding us here that that lump that God is pulling from to make vessels of mercy is not a redeemed lump. It's not a lump of people that are headed to heaven and some of those he keeps going to heaven and others he diverts and sends to hell. No. The lump of clay from which God draws elect people, the, the, the mass of humanity is entirely headed to hell in rebellion against God. And then from those, He has chosen out some and saved some for the purpose of making the riches of His glory known. So that as He, as he shapes and fashions those who were headed for hell and fashions them into mercy-receiving, honorable vessels, we see the greatness of His glory. God is not creating sinful people for the purpose of punishing them. He is punishing people who are already sinful and in rebellion against Him and in rejection of Him. And it is not unjust for God to keep them in their sin. It is not unjust of God not to be gracious to all men. It is, in fact, a way of demonstrating His power, His patience, His glory. And, and it is a way also of friends including the Gentiles into His redemptive plan. And that's verses 24 and following. We've already alluded to this. He not only is called from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. God chose the people of Israel to be His vessels of mercy and He has chosen Gentiles who deserve His wrath and His condemnation from all over the world to be elected to salvation. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has gathered them in and said, Receive some of the blessing that I have granted to the people of Israel. Friends, our election is not dependent on what we were prior to salvation for we were not worth saving. It is His plan that prepares us. It is His love that draws us. It is His mercy and His grace that spares us and imputes His righteousness to us. Friends, it is all of grace alone. And those who are His greatest enemies, He has adopted and made to be His sons. Says one commentator, the people who are not God's people will be called nothing less than sons with all the rights and privileges that that implies, of one who is none less than God and living God at that. God has amazing mercy to include Gentiles into His redemptive plan. God is also consistent with His plan of salvation in the Old Testament. And here in verses 27 to 29, Paul unfolds, nothing new is going on. And throughout this chapter... 
Paul has appealed to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea to demonstrate that that the plan of redemption, the plan of election, the, the plan of calling God's people, the plan of the Gentiles has always been the plan. There's nothing new that's going on. And so he says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel would be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. In other words, when, when the nation of Israel went into captivity, into Babylon, it was not God's intention at that time to save the entire nation, but only to save a remnant. So that, so that as the remnant is saved, the Gentiles could be filled, could be grafted in and brought in, and then ultimately that the nation will be saved as a nation. This is nothing new. And Paul is, Paul is continually drawing our, our eyes back to the Old Testament to see that what he's teaching and what he's saying is not some new concept, but it's, it's been rooted in revealed scripture to that point. All of the Old Testament has pointed to this. And I've drawn attention to this previously, but, but Romans quotes the Old Testament 63 times. The, Romans quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. So more than Matthew, more than Hebrews, more than Revelation. Matthew and Hebrews written to Jewish people, Jewish audience, and, and books that, that do lean significantly on the Old Testament. And more than those, Paul quotes from the Old Testament in this book to show us that, that this is not new revelation. And in fact, what's particularly interesting, 63 times he quotes from the Old Testament, chapters 9 to 11, as he considers the sovereign plan of God in election, he quotes from the Old Testament 33 times. In three chapters, more than half of the quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Romans are in these three chapters. It is Paul's way of affirming, listen, this isn't new. This has always been the plan of God. And God is faithful. God didn't get to Malachi chapter 4, turn the page to Matthew 1 and say, oh, wait a minute, time out, let me change my plan. No. It is a consistent plan from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Well, so why does God still find fault with those who reject Him? It is because it is His sovereign right. It is His means of being gracious to the Gentiles and it is consistent with everything that he has written in the Old Testament. God is not contradicting himself. God is being faithful to himself. And none of these things remove from people their own responsibility for their sin. And that is where Paul goes in verses 30 to 33. The election of God does not mean that man is not responsible. In the first 29 chapters of this, or 29 chapters of this verse, uh, in the first 29 verses of this chapter, um, Paul is unfolding God's sovereign plan of redemption. In verse 30, and we noted this last week, he, he starts to make a shift and he's emphasizing the responsibility of mankind to respond in faith to God. So, verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, that is, the Gentiles should have been pursuing righteousness, should have been going after righteousness, but they did not. Verse 31, the Israelites were pursuing a, a law of righteousness, so that was their action. They were doing that. They were going after righteousness. They were just going after the wrong thing. Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. So it's, it's pointing to the responsibility of mankind, reporting to the responsibility of the Gentiles and then the Israelites. Verse 32 and verse 33, the Israelites stumbled. The problem is not that they weren't elected, but he says, verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It was their fault that they weren't saved. 
He will say the same thing in verse 33. I lay a, a, in Zion a stone of stumbling, a, a rock of offense. It's, it's their fault that they tripped over this stone, that they didn't believe. We'll find something similar in chapter 10, verse 3. Not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Their, their rebellion is their fault. Um, they're responsible for their rebellion. Uh, starting in verse 8, and really through the rest of the chapter, we see a consistent emphasis on the re- of the responsibility of people to respond to God in faith and to believe. They are responsible to believe. And that's why, that's why Paul is so burdened to go to the nations, because it's, it's, it's the responsibility of those who are in rebellion against God to respond in faith to God. That's why he says in 15.18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. I, I want to preach so that people will respond in faith and responding in faith that they will obey Him. That, that's just his passion. The question is then, how can God be sovereign while man is still responsible? In part, that's the question of verse 19, isn't it? Why, why does he still find fault? If God, if God is sovereign... How can he still condemn? A man, man's not responsible is the implied question. And, and, and Paul answers that, as I've already noted, verse 20, by saying, asking the wrong question, buddy, you don't have a mind to comprehend it. But then, but then he does answer that question in part, starting in verse 21, by saying that, that God has a sovereign right to act according to his purposes. What, what is notable here is that Paul is taking these two things, he's putting them side by side, and chapter 10 is going to be filled with with calls to faith and and responsibility to believe and and, and the emphasis on mankind's uh, responsibility to to trust in Christ. And, And Paul has laid these two things beside each other. And our tendency is to say, okay, Paul, sort it out. Of, of all the questions that I've been asked in 29 years of, of pastoral ministry, this is the question that gets asked more than anything else. Help me understand the responsibility of man and God's sovereignty. I, I can answer that in two words. I can't. <laughs> and nobody can. You notice what Paul does here? He doesn't sort it out either. He just says this is true. God God is sovereign and man is responsible. And he lays them side by side and doesn't try to help our puny little minds comprehend it. He just says they're both true. The reason anyone is saved is because of the merciful grace of God. God is responsible for the salvation of all those who are saved. And the reason that anyone is condemned is because the sinner has rebelliously rejected God. The sinner is responsible for his own condemnation. This is what theologians call an antinomy. It's it's the seeming contradiction of two parallel or corresponding truths. And friend, we want to untie that knot. Leave it alone. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on Romans 9. In Romans 9, from verses 6 to 29, Paul explains why anybody is saved. It is the sovereign election of God. In these verses, verses 30 to 33, he is showing us why anybody is lost. 
And the explanation of that is their own responsibility. So this is what the Bible teaches. Election alone accounts for the saved, but non-election does not account for the lost. No one would be saved were it not that God in a sovereign manner has chosen him, as we have seen abundantly from verses 6 to 29. It is God's action alone that saves a man. So why is anybody lost? Is it because they are not elected? No. What accounts for the lost is their rejection of the gospel. We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. So, where election is taught, oh friend, preach that with gusto and with delight and with joy. And where responsibility in the scriptures is preached and taught, then we must preach it with gusto and with joy as we will in uh, chapter 10. And then, instead of trying to reconcile it, do what Paul does when he gets to the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And our tendency is to say, yes, God is unsearchable. Yes, God is unfathomable. Let me now search out and find exactly what God is like. If He is unfathomable, friend, you have to rest in the fact there are things you will never understand about Him. And just rest in that. So what should we see from this passage? How is God faithful? This is, this is a chapter where Paul has been wanting us to see that God is faithful in keeping us in the salvation He has granted to us. How is God faithful? God is faithful to fulfill His promises to Israel. A temporary unbelief of the nation to this point does not invalidate His eternal, unconditional covenant. He will yet be faithful to His people. They will be redeemed. The nation as a nation will come into fellowship with Him in fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. God is faithful also to execute justice against the unrighteous. Oh friend, no sin is ever going to go unpunished. And I know you look outside these walls and you say, well, there will be justice. Yes. Every sin, every sin will be punished. Either it will be punished as God poured out His wrath on Christ as the sin bearer of those who would believe in Him, or it will be punished on those who reject Christ And they receive condemnation for all of eternity in hell because of their unbelief. But God will execute justice against the unrighteous. God is faithful also to mercifully choose unrighteous people to salvation. God is just. God is right in pouring out His wrath against sin. But at the same time, He is also fully merciful. He is compassionate. And those two things do not work in conflict with one another. God can be just and at the same time be merciful to sinners. And He is faithful to Himself. And my friend, that should absolutely overwhelm you. And God is faithful to provide a Savior and a salvation that will not disappoint believers. Everything in this world will disappoint you at times. Everything Everything will disappoint you. Did you 
See the end of verse 33. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. That's Paul's way of saying, you know that question you were asking about, will God finish this salvation with us? Yes. He will finish the salvation. He will bring you into glory. He will free, He will fully liberate you from your sin. You will not be disappointed. You will be satisfied. He is everything we need. Our Father, we thank You for these reminders as we as we come to the table of communion, as we come to the table of fellowship with You. These are reminders that we need so that we can be confident of the salvation You have granted to us. Oh, Father, might Christ be our delight. Might Christ be our joy. Might Christ be our satisfaction. And might nothing else in this world satisfy us like Christ does. There are many other things You give us. Things in common grace that we enjoy. Food and weather and governments that protect us and police officers that protect us and so many other kindnesses. But Father, there's, there's no grace that You have given us like the grace of Jesus Christ. And while we look forward to a meal that will satisfy us in a few minutes, what we really look forward to is the meal that we are about to partake of now, the, the meal that is focused on Christ and our remembrance of Him. He's what we need. And for those of us who are in Christ, He is exactly what we've received. We thank You. In Christ's name, Amen.